Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a very special show for you today. You might learn something. Brianna, <laughs> what's going on? Well, attorneys for Hunter Biden are calling for criminal probes into allies of former President Trump, who they claim illegally trafficked contents from his stolen laptop, marking a major shift in legal strategy toward the offensive for Biden. In letters obtained by NBC News, lawyers for the president's son petitioned both the Department of Justice and Delaware Attorney General's office to investigate, quote, individuals for whom there is considerable reason to believe violated various federal laws in accessing, copying, manipulating, and or disseminating Mr. Biden's personal computer data. According to Rudy Giuliani and Mac Isaac, the owner of the computer infam uh, infamous computer repair shop. Biden's lawyers also sent a letter to Fox News's Tucker Carlson demanding the retraction of false and defamatory statements and putting the network, quote, on notice of possible legal action. So this is going on the offensive, uh, but, but there's going to be a couple issues here, one being, so even if it's true that the computer repair shop owner and perhaps Rudy Giuliani violated some basic cybercrime law or theft law from allegedly taking a laptop that didn't belong to them or doing something with it, that is not going to, that, let's say that's true and you could have, you have some case, maybe even a criminal case against those two individuals or some other people like that. That doesn't um, change whether the information, like the information that we deserve to know, like that's, that's like going after a whistleblower, you know what I mean? the, a whistlebl the journalist, the people writing yeah. about it aren't like, it, as long as they didn't participate in the whatever surreptitious effort to obtain it, just publishing the information that fell into their hands, that is not a crime, right? That's whistleblowing, that's journalism. And then the information itself, if it is, if it lends itself toward a criminal interest in what Biden is doing, his influence peddling, anything else, it's not like, we get to wave that away because the information was obtained in a wrongful manner. Yeah, the, the, so the it's, it's still, there's still a there there to it. The argument that the computer repair person has always made, and as, up to this point, an argument that I don't think has been challenged, certainly not in any legal context. Was that it was effectively Is abandoned. that it was abandoned, right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how they expect to get around that. And as far as I've seen, the reporting so far hasn't been very specific about what federal or Delaware laws they're alleging have been broken by not just the computer repair person. They're talking about whether Rudy Giuliani broke a law right. by disseminating this information. And it is really, it's hard for me to conceptualize. I'm no, you know, I have no expertise in this area of the law, right. but it, it's hard to imagine a penalty that would attach to Rudy Giuliani for his behavior that wouldn't start to attach to all of the journalists who are recipients of information that, again, they took no part in actually collecting or inducing right. the theft of, but is newsworthy, et cetera. Like if you went through someone's garbage and you took their laptop and then you found evidence of a criminal conspiracy in the hard drive of the laptop, there would be no charges. Yeah. <laughs> would, and anyway, and even if there were, even if you violated some disposal of trash statute, there's evidence of a criminal conspiracy on the laptop. Right. That's so its what, own what thing. is the point of this? I, I mean, don't understand. I guess, it's to intimidate people to back off, right. probably. It, it's odd, though, because at this point, it's all out, right? It's yeah. not as though the They're threat to, of legal action yeah. is going to prevent some tasty morsel from the, from the laptop from not getting out. We know everything that's on there. So at this point, it feels almost more of a, of a media ploy to give somebody a, a different kind of story story to share wrongdoing the same way that the story of the the misplaced uh, confidential documents that now it seems everybody in the world has. The fact that now people on both sides of the aisle have 
kind of I mean, blood on their hands has muddled the story. Maybe that's the hope, that there's some narrative confusion here that mm -hmm. makes Hunter Biden look better in the long run. Well, Tucker Carlson and other Fox News hosts are covering this story a lot. Mm. I've been watching more Fox lately, and it is, it's frequent. Hunter Biden is a main character on Fox, so uh, they're, he's trying to get them to stop covering him so much, uh, which is bad, which actually shows you how libel laws and things like that can really be abused to silence important conversations. And conservatives have recently, selectively at least, fallen in love with the concept of libel. It's, it, it oh, yes. can be used, it's bad. It can be used to chill important investigations of people like Hunter Biden. You, you start threatening people, and Fox is a big, powerful media organization, so they can stand up to the scrutiny. They, you know, they're not gonna listen to this. They're gonna still cover Hunter Biden. But you could scare other smaller media companies, people starting out, people who have real scoops, you can you can intimidate them into silence. Um, actually, that was the early story with with Me Too, with some of mm. uh, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, with stuff in other countries in Australia where the libel laws are super duper strong, and you can't say anything mean about anyone without getting sued out of existence. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Yeah, I mentioned this in a radar that I did, I think last week. Uh, There's a case in Texas where Beto O'Rourke is being sued because he accused a local uh, big energy kind of oil mogul of basically paying off Greg Abbott and the concept of their campaign, giving donations to Greg Abbott in terms of in exchange for favorable legislation that, in fact, did come down the pike for whatever reason, this favorable legislation to this oil company. And now the oil billionaire is suing, um, is suing Beto O'Rourke for defamation for making political statements about the drawing inferences about pay to play um, and, and lobbying efforts. So are we going to live in a world where if a billionaire doesn't like the fact that you're accusing him of lobbying the government for favorable legislation, you can be sued and have the, 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 the financial backing of billions of dollars leveraged against you when you're just a politician trying to make a case for your constituents, whatever you feel about Beto O'Rourke, and I'm no big fan, yeah. that the, the long-term implications of that seem obviously very harmful. Yeah, it's very concerning. It's, it's not the right, it's just bad. Yeah. It's bad to, to close off public discussion of important issues. And you know, we deserve to know more about what Hunter Biden was doing, if he was promising access to his father, to shady foreign interests. Um, Is that the angle that's being taken on Fox? Or are they talking about kind of the more prurient aspect? No, 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 it, they're or? taking that issue. In, in fact, they specifically, they were talking about it, I think, on The Five yesterday, earlier this week. Geraldo Rivera and Judge Jeanine Pirro were debating it, and she said explicitly, like, no, we don't care. Geraldo was trying to say, and I agree with him on this, you know, he's this, this is a man who had a drug problem. Joe Biden cares about his son. You know, is that, what's the national interest in right. that, but so is Judge Pierre said, no, that's not what we care it, about here, and I, it's not what I care about. Is this a particular, you know, evidence, are there connections, claims that are being made about what that influence peddling looked like, what actually illegal may have happened, anything of that well, sort? I mean, there's lots the of claims being made. We've seen them, you know, some of these emails and these messages promising access to the big guy, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. I, you know, it, it seems pretty clear to me, at least, that Hunter Biden was trying to leverage his last name right, but the argument for his own financial interests. Liberals interest. make is that there's no evidence that he was successful in doing so, or that Biden yes, I participated. Think that's, I think that's still an open question: mm -hmm. whether Biden himself had anything um, illicit involvement in that, and then also whether the influence peddling technically does violate some 
actual criminal mm. code that remains to be seen. Mm. But uh, but anyway, I don't think they're going to put it to, <laughs> to get it out of the public. Uh, dialogue or shut it down by say by going after Rudy Giuliani for passing along the laptop. Yeah, yeah. that's that's not going to happen. Remember when or the laptop repair uh, shop owner? Remember when people were the mainstream media and 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 so and then all the FBI officials never said this is Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. This is, I don't know, but but. Isn't there an actual laptop repair shop owner? What do they think? They hired an actor to play the laptop I mean, it really owner? It goes to that was the, the power of yeah. that smear at the time. If you, if you labeled anything Russian disinformation, yeah. to push back against it was also Russian dis disinformation. It was a kind of McCarthyism. It really was. I just remember thinking, what are they going to say when the actual guy comes forward who says, I'm the guy who owns the laptop repair shop? Like, they're going to point at him and say, Russian! Russian, he's going to be disguised. <laughs> I own the I own laptop repair shop. <laughs> like, aha! Oh, God, don't let him have an accent or oh. even an Eastern European last name. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up later on Rising, we'll be joined by the Twitter files, David Zweig and Michael Schellenberger, to hear the story behind their reporting. You do not want to miss that, and you don't want to miss Rihanna's Radar, which is coming up next. What's on your radar? Well, Robbie, there is an ongoing debate about whether or not the murder of Tyree Nichols has anything to do with white supremacy. The fact that five black officers were involved has led some to believe that race couldn't have had anything to do with it. And the fact that at least one white officer was involved but largely omitted from the narrative proves to others that it absolutely did. Regardless of where you land on that issue, it is clear to me that there's something clumsy about the way Americans have been talking about racial prejudice over the last 10 years or so. As Americans have become more comfortable with conceptual ideas like white supremacy, racial bias, and structural racism, those concepts have, at times, been overapplied to the point of farce. What were, worse, what were once, excuse me, academically rooted in narrowly defined ideas have leaked through the realm of HR and diversity and inclusion professionals who have too often, have too little rigorous experience with the academic terms they use beyond maybe a sociology class they once took sophomore year. And that's how, in some narrow context, the idea of, let's say, racial privilege the idea that stereotypes and presumptions can advantage some people depending on their identity or disadvantage others, has in some narrow cases been perverted into the idea that white people, even white children, are morally culpable for the actions of their forefathers. It's how academic critiques of the value we place on traits like timeliness became clumsy inclusiveness guides that warn that punishing employees for tardiness is racism. Writer and public intellectual Thomas Chatterton Williams tackled this subject in an article published in The Atlantic yesterday. In it, he argued that the term white supremacy in particular has been overapplied in a way that is, quote, a much vague and more totalizing concept that includes such innocuous practices as punctuality. He argued that white supremacy used to refer to the belief encoded in both custom and law that white people sit at the top of a biological racial hierarchy and that they must remain there. But to claim that Tyree Nichols' death at the hands of black cops and at least one white cop was a product of white supremacy, he says, is something unknowable. This expectedly made Thomas the target of a ton of online blowback, some of which I agree with, but I do want to credit more of this position than others might. First, I want to make it clear that I don't disagree with the argument that white supremacy played a role in Tyree Nichols' death. 
Though I personally would choose to use a term like structural racism instead for the sake of clarity and specificity. The reason is this, despite all the hand-wringing about how race is overtaught in schools, CRT, et cetera, et cetera, most of us learned a pretty simple version of racism that was limited to interpersonal acts between two people, one white, one not, that expressed prejudice. That's what we think racism is. And the presence of five black cops in this case confuses that narrative for obvious reasons. And yet those of us who benefited from the types of racial studies that are now being banned by certain authoritarian conservatives across the country, have a broader understanding of what prejudice can look like and who can hold it. For example, murderers who kill white victims are four times more likely to get the death penalty regardless of the race of the perpetrator, leading some analysts to the conclusion that because ending white life is punished more severely, that white lives are valued more, at least by our criminal justice system. Some would argue that the disproportionate value for white life is taught to us through media and movies and fairy tales, and also via our policies, which treat low white birth rates as something to lament and high non-white birth rates as great replacement. And these are lessons easily internalized by anyone, including, of course, black cops. James Baldwin wrote 37 years ago that, quote, if you must call a policeman, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform, whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that, though he was black, he was not black like you. Although it may seem like a post hoc rationalization to attribute Tyree's death to white supremacy, I definitely see the argument. Still, I think at bottom, Thomas is right about there being something off about the way we talk about race today. The problem, I think, is rooted more in DEI tutorials taught by less than expert race professionals than academic disciplines like CRT. But there have been some documented instances of what I would describe as overreach. Lessons which veer from ideas like racial bias can advantage white people and disadvantage others into ideas like white people are intrinsically bad. And I'm frustrated by those overreaches precisely because those outlier lessons have enabled an authoritarian pogrom against basic lessons in African-American history. Yesterday on the show, we discussed a clip of a conversation between actor Brian Cranston and comedian Bill Maher in which the latter argued that the ban on CRT isn't really attacking the teaching of, say, basic history, that no one really has a problem with teaching basic history about slavery and the like. The only issue, of course, is overreach. But critical race theory can mean it's, I mean, it's just one of these catch-all terms. If you mean we should honestly teach our past, of course. If you mean more what the uh, 1619 book says, which is that it's just the essence of America and that we are irredeemable, that's just wrong. It's yeah. not. I mean, okay. yeah, right. I, I, I agree with that. But even even teaching our past and being honest and owning up to who we are as a country so, in the history. Most schools are doing that. I mean, I'm sure there are ones in Texas that are not. Look, in Florida, they're, they're, they they want to do do away with critical race theory in a lot of other states. Because, some, because sometimes it veers off into things that are really not appropriate in schools. So how do you govern you, that? If you're how telling you... five-year-olds that you're either an oppressor or someone who uh, was uh, oppressed, 
you're you're introducing ideas about race that are inappropriate for, for kids that age who can't understand okay. it. To the extent that some teacher somewhere is telling a child that they are an oppressor, I agree that that is wrong, assuming, of course, that that is taking place somewhere in America. But as often happens in both recent history and historically, narrow outlier or wedge issues are used to open a Pandora's box of authoritarian censorship. In Florida, Ron DeSantis has given up the pretense that his pogrom against learning about racism is really about protecting the kids. He's now trying to ban CRT or curriculum about diversity at public colleges, at public colleges altogether. Dozens of math textbooks have been banned in the state because they allegedly indoctrinate kids. An example of this indoctrination? Well, one book reviewer tasked with the censorship regime flagged a statement that said that the United States had not eradicated poverty or racism. Okay, the statement that got censored is that the United States has not eradicated poverty or racism. I'm not sure when that became a controversial statement. Marr repeated the line you heard just then that conservatives have no issue talking about racism or real history, just the wacky CRT stuff. But the proof is in the pudding. Another flagged passage that got a book banned was a reference to the gender pay gap. The censor argued that acknowledging inequity made her feel inferior as a young woman, so better to censor the existence of inequity in the first place, I guess. Isn't that exactly the kind of snowflake behavior, trigger warnings in books that conservatives once parodied? While I do want to affirm that some excesses do exist, these excesses have been used to justify broad authoritarian censorship. Listen to Marjorie Taylor Greene here describe CRT, again, an academic discipline much broader than narrow complaints about individual teachers who might say something offensive. Can you tell me uh, how, much, how much COVID cash went to CRT? CRT? Critical race theory in education. It's, it's a racist right. uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things in education? Yeah. Uh, no, I do not know that. But I, I do know that there's f provisions that the uh, federal funds generally are not used, they're supposed to be used for curriculum. Oh. Uh, that's a state. Oh, Mr. Dodaro, I have to tell you, in Illinois, they, they receive $5.1 billion um, at, at an elementary school there that, that used it for equity and diversity. Now, MSNBC reported that this $5.1 billion funding claim is false. But are we really in a world where we're just calling everything we disagree with here racist? Isn't that what conservatives used to complain about with liberals? It seems clear that conservatives who have long sought to defund public education are, in fact, using the threat of CRT to drain money from already struggling public school budgets, undoing the public education system that once made America the envy of the world. If the issue is teachers telling kids that it's bad to be white, okay, well, why not ban teachers from telling kids it's bad to be white? If everyone, everyone agrees that it's good to learn about slavery and to have a holistic view of the founding fathers and what they did well and what they did poorly, why not narrowly tailor laws? Why not enact legislation that results in, uh, sorry, why, <laughs> instead of narrowly tailor laws, enact legislation that results in dozens of math books being banned in Florida? along with, by the way, the entire AP African-American history class. 
Are we to believe that these authoritarian conservatives truly have no problem with the discussion of slavery when they use such an imprecise tool to address this problem? Is this not akin to saying there was some COVID misinformation on social media platforms, so it justifies banning entire accounts or entire subjects? That entire hashtag should be suppressed as a consequence. How can a person see authoritarian overreach in one scenario, but not in the other? I want to be clear, evidence of these overreaches in a primary school context, where I would agree they'd be most damaging, are fairly limited. On the other hand, evidence that teachers of all races regularly negatively stereotype black students, place them in remedial classes, call the cops on them, and have them arrested is actually significant. And it's worth asking why the former is considered a national crisis by some conservatives, but the latter is all but ignored, including by Democratic politicians, despite black Americans being their most loyal electoral constituency. Now, one last thing, it's worth asking what's gained by framing police violence as almost exclusively a black issue, or one motivated primarily by white supremacy, rather than what I believe it is, which is an authoritarian desire to control a public via a militarized police state. I think it's important to recognize white supremacy. It's real and alive and well. You know, the Tree of Life synagogue murderer didn't randomly choose his victims. He shouted, all Jews must die before killing 11 and wounding six. The Buffalo shooter, who killed 10 black Americans at a grocery store last year, explicitly targeted black people, writing in his manifesto, I am simply a white man seeking to protect and serve my community, my people, my culture, and my race, inciting the great replacement theory. It would be absurd to deny the existence of racism and the special harm that targets of racism must endure. But it's also true that like so many issues that disproportionately affect historically marginalized groups, the majority of people affected in America, because the demogra uh, demographic reality of this country, are in fact white. By pure numbers, police brutality touches more white people than black people. Of the 1,060 civilians shot by the police in 2022, 220 were black. 374 were white, 114 were Hispanic, and a number were race unknown. The disproportionate weight of police murders borne by black Americans must be noted. It is relevant. It has had the effect of terrorizing a community, causing black men in particular to panic in the face of routine traffic stops and manifesting a cultural practice known as the talk, where black parents explain to their children techniques to avoid violence at the hands of ostensible public servants, a talk given at painfully young ages. It's hard to imagine a world where you'd have to warn a 12-year-old that they might be perceived as a threat to an adult man, a cop with a gun. And yet, as we know, Tamir Rice is dead, and the officers who shot the little boy playing in the park seconds after pulling up on him in their cop car were not sanctioned in any way over the incident. This is a unique and specific racialized tragedy. But also tragic are the plurality of deaths at the hands of cops that affect white people. Deaths like the murder of Daniel Shaver, who was gunned down cruelly after being given contradictory orders by cops who had him lying supine in a hallway. Cross your legs, no kneel, no crawl, but don't put your hands down. The cop said he was reaching for his waist. What it looks like in the video is that he was trying to keep his shorts from falling down as he tried to obey orders. The tragedy of this event seems obvious to me, as does the tragedy of Tyree Nichols' murder. Tyree was also given contradictory instructions. Unlike Daniel, who had the cops called on him because he had a gun propped up and pointed outside his window, Tyree was completely unarmed and had no criminal record. He was slight, 
a mere 145 pounds due to his struggles, it seems, with Crohn's disease. And he was the father of a four-year-old son. Is the case for police reform stronger when Shaver's story is told alongside Tyree's? If Americans are, in fact, less likely to support a social program or policy if it's perceived to benefit blacks, does it disadvantage the cause itself to frame issues like police brutality through primarily the lens of racism? Is it more persuasive for interlocutors like Van Jones to argue that the police who killed Tyree Nichols were driven by racism, as opposed to arguing that the police represent an authoritarian power that could come for your sons and daughters too, no matter what your race is? Should both arguments be made? And are historically marginalized groups ultimately hurt by framing America's racial issues as intractable? If there's no curing racism, no curing America, no curing white people, why even try? Does that sort of Afro-pessimism that can be so compelling in an academic sphere serve to stymie progress when applied in a policy context? Does making police violence a black issue insulate what is fundamentally a widely applied authoritarian regime from broader critique? Well, you touched on a lot of things there, uh, but I agree with that last point. I, I think I agree with the point you're making. I think I've said it before that I, I do worry that giving police violence an explicitly racial framing uh, makes the cause less appealing to conservatives or independents, other people. And also, I think a lot of people just intuitively struggle, struggle to grasp the concept of what it means to be something be disproportionate. Yeah. Like, it can be the case, it is the case that black people disproportionately suffer police violence, even though, because the vast majority of the country is white people, they're, yeah. they're in raw numbers, there are more white people. This comes up in the mass shooting dialogue. Yeah. You see article after article about how all white shooters are disproportionately white males, it's white males, it's white males. If you look at the statistics, they're not disproportionately white males, it's just 70% of all people are white males. So you're going to have more in raw numbers, even well, if it's not. It's not 70%, of, 70% of all people are white. But white, not white yeah, males. White. Men, still well, there have, is, men still have to reckon with Men, in fact, that, yeah. yes, there is a disproportionate, uh, yeah. most violence is both, is both ca responsible, caused by men and are also the recipient of violence as men. Sure, yeah. So, you know, that these are some true. difficult questions. I know I touched on a lot there, but, you know, I think it's, it's difficult to make this argument because I don't want, I, I think the racialized aspect of crimes matter, right? If I, mm -hmm. if I choose to target you, to stalk you, to hurt you specifically because I'm out to get you, Robbie, certainly you wouldn't be indifferent to that, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, people's, I, you know, to be a random- It would, uh, it would explain quite violence. a lot of things, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in, in, all, in all seriousness, you know, so it, it matters. It matters in terms of how we keep people safe and, you know, to have that background. At the same time, there's so many well-meaning, I think, black interlocutors who make this case about how, well, white people don't care if a policy is black. At the same time, they are distrustful of policies that are framed as anything other than pro-black policies. What's your black agenda? Mm -hmm. You know, what specifically are you as a, as a politician going to do for black people? I think those are very reasonable questions to ask. But from a public policy perspective, mm -hmm. when, you, when you look at this confusion that's happening right now around Tyree, Tyree Nichols and whether the police could be acting as a, a, at a racism, and you see all these conservatives saying, well, no, it's not racism. It's, it's very bad, but it wasn't racism. Okay. Well, it's very, very bad. What do you attribute it mm -hmm. to? And does this mean as a conservative you're going to take more seriously the critique of the police force if it really just is about the police being bad? And, and also the policies designed specifically to focus on the racial part of, of various aspects of the workplace and et cetera, the DEI stuff, 
tend to be the ones with with the least um, legitimacy behind them and yeah. also a, a difficulty in discerning in the data that they actually improved things. Yeah. A lot of people, including Jesse Single, has done a lot of good reporting on yeah. looking at did, did this, did the implicit bias test, did implementing all these things actually lead to a less racially hostile workplace or workforce or whatever it is? And the answer looks to be from the data, yeah. often not. Yeah, it's about protecting the companies. Yeah. We'll have more rising right, right after this. Stay with us. Last night, several authors of the Twitter files, including Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, David Zweig, and Nellie Bowles, answered subscribers' questions to the real story behind their reporting. Since the release of the first batch a few weeks ago, the Twitter files have reported on how the platform handled former President Trump's ban, its secret blacklist, and its interference in the coronavirus debate. But how did this reporting all come together? Did Elon Musk direct the authors in any way? Why is the reporting being spaced out and not released all at once? Well, we have two of the authors themselves with us today. Writers Michael Schellenberger and David Zweig join us now to explain it all. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So I'll start with you, Michael. Like, there has been some, you know, questioning, some conversation, especially among the liberal media, about why it is that the particular journalists involved are the ones involved, whether there's any intention of opening up more broadly, and whether or not there would be more credibility and more attention, frankly, paid by the mainstream media to the content of the Twitter files if the the, the kind of stable of folks that were uh, reporting on these documents were mm -hmm. broader and perhaps more ideologically diverse. Tell us how this all uh, happened and how, if, if at all, you would respond to those kinds of criticisms. Sure. Well, well, first, thanks for inviting us to actually address them, because um, it's shocking that people have made a set of uh, false claims about the Twitter files without actually interviewing any of us. So one of the things that people say is that the reporters were all handpicked by Elon Musk. That's not true. I was asked by my friend Barry Weiss to come in and help her with this. Um, when I arrived at the office, um, I happened to uh, see Elon Musk um, making himself a cup of coffee. I introduced myself to him. He said he did not know who I was. Um, just as background, um, I've criticized Elon Musk re repeatedly over the last decade in Mother Jones a decade ago. I criticized him for advocating the closure of California's last nuclear plant. And I criticized his statements on solar panels in my book, Apocalypse Never. So the so either um, you know, if he did know, which he says he didn't and Barry said he didn't, um, then that's either false or the idea that he chose people that were sympathetic to him. It's also false. There is also no sense from him that he really cared that, you know, what any of our other views were. He was looking for reporters to come in and do basically what they said, which was to, um, you know, to go through the documents and, and release them. Um, you know, the, the thing I think one people have to understand is that there's just huge body, huge amounts of documents that we were given. Um, I can't prove that none of them were filtered, but I saw no evidence of that. We were given very big chunks of emails, like 10,000 emails or 10, you know, 15,000 emails to go through. Um, lots of information it would have been very difficult for anybody to filter it. Um, I think more people should get into the Twitter files. I think there should be a huge uh, diversity of people in there. Um, I encouraged, um, I had a German reporter reach out to me a couple of days ago, ask if they could get access to the German Twitter files. I passed on the request to Elon Musk. I think it's important to remember that we are not Elon Musk. Uh, we do not work for Twitter. Uh, we had a chance to cover a major story. I'm very disappointed, though probably not surprised, that the mainstream news media 
haven't haven't really sought to understand it. As far as I know, there haven't been significant requests to go in there themselves. So it kind of is what it is. Um, I would love to see all the files released. I think it's hard to do because you have to redact so many names and you have to protect privacy, but it just kind of is what it is. I appreciate a chance to address it openly. David, why don't you speak to your involvement and what the process has been like for you? Yeah, um, I was there while Michael was there. And yeah, my experience is similar to his as far as as he uh, described his access. Um, Barry Weiss said, um, had contacted me and said, you know, hey, Twitter files, we would love you to come out and be be our guy for um, COVID related matters. I said, done, you know, and I, I think what people don't realize is any journalist who has access to something, whatever it is at Twitter or some other institution wants to go look at it. It's, it was immaterial, whether it's Elon Musk or someone else, we were given access to files that might help illuminate all sorts of things that millions of people are interested in. Of course, we're gonna go look at it, but I had no interaction with Musk at all. Um, and, I, and I can also say just sort of dovetailing with what Michael said, um, while we were there, the, the type of searches we were doing were very difficult to do. It's not um, how some people um, characterize it or imagine it, where we could just go in and look up anything we wanted. It was very tedious, complicated um, process with, you know, putting in a request for, you know, we want to see emails from such and such person during these dates with these keywords or something like that. And it could take hours or all day to get something back. And we also had an engineer um, in the room with us who's doing a different type of searches in the sort of like back end of Twitter, looking at different people's accounts. Um, so he was actually doing that in front of me while I'm like looking over his shoulder. So unless there was like a very sophisticated ruse going on, I mean, we watched him literally doing the searches that we were requesting in the room. So it, it's hard to imagine how there was any sort of like filtering or something done, at least with those types of searches. Yeah, I completely appreciate that the news value of this is evident and anybody kind of questioning why any journalist wouldn't want it to take a peek um, is, doesn't really understand journalism, I, I would say. But Michael, just going back to your point, I mean, I, I completely appreciate that also you are not Elon Musk and you're not the ones that are making decisions about who gets access to it and you said that you would love it to be more broadly accessible and that you recommended folks um, to be able to come in and that your involvement is only because, you know, uh, Barry, Barry Weiss reached out to you. But some people might hear that and say, well, you know, constructively, if Elon Musk picked the first cohort of journalists to report on it, and then the only ones that get brought in are people who happen to be friends or acquaintances or professional um, acquaintances with the people who were initially picked, well, that still keeps perhaps the kind of ideological circle relatively tight, and it is a kind of um, unintentional but a constructive gatekeeping that's going on here. Um, and so, uh, you know, you mentioned that you had recommended that somebody else be involved. Has anybody that you recommended been approved basically by Elon Musk. Do you have the sense that it's likely that he is open to um, the suggestions that are made by those of you who have already been granted access to the files? I, on the last question, I just don't know. I mean, I just would challenge any, I mean, literally most of the media have been fawning over Elon Musk over the last decade. I'm mm -hmm. literally, I don't know of anybody who had been as critical of Elon Musk on terms of solar issues, in terms of nuclear, in terms of his core issues than me. And I was in there. Lee Fong from The Intercept came in. It's a very progressive magazine. Lee Fong is one of the most well-regarded 
independent investigative journalists in the country, given his investigations, particularly into efforts by DHS, FBI, and other groups to try to censor so-called misinformation. Um, I, as far as I know, Elon had no idea, uh, you know, who Lee Fong was when he came in there. So I just, I think there's a lot of carping going on. And I think there's sort of a sense of, I think there's some professional jealousy. And mm -hmm. I just think there's a lot of behavior that isn't really the kind of behavior you'd expect from journalists. You would expect journalists to be like climbing over themselves to fight to get in there and demanding a, a chance to review the files or discussing the files that have been released. Instead, it's basically become a thing where somehow they want to make the journalists involved in the issue. It's bizarre. It would be like attacking the New York Times for publishing the Pentagon Papers. Well, well frankly, yeah. the most recent uh, release, I think, starts uh, to help understand why journalists would want this story to go away, because, uh, frankly, a lot of mainstream publications are, are very much compromised by reporting that I, I think it was Taibbi was the uh, author of the most recent drop about the Russian bots list and and how that was that narrative was run with in the mainstream media and, and Twitter itself, uh, Yoel Roth, finding out that that was you know, reverse engineering it, finding out that it was that it was fake, that you know, the significant part of the whole RussiaGate conversation, you know, made up, pushed by former national security advisors, and Twitter internally debunks it, but is afraid to speak about that publicly because the kind of fervor around the Russia narrative is it's at a fever pitch. And, uh, and and that makes it makes a lot of people look really bad. It makes certain people at Twitter maybe look bad. It makes the mainstream media look terrible. Um, uh, so, it, David, do you think do you think there's a, maybe a reluctance to take on the Twitter files from the mainstream media because now it, it puts in light some of their I think hyperbole, specifically around Russia stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think Taibbi's recent reporting is embarrassing to a lot of media outlets. They, you know, at least according to Matt's reporting, which I read quickly, so I can't speak precisely to it, but it certainly appears that a whole lot of prestigious media outlets were reporting on information that wasn't it wasn't backed up. There was this, you know, Hamilton 68 thing. And so they have, so that's an explicit example where they would have an incentive to not want to report something that showed that they were, um, had a lot of stories that were about something that wasn't true. But I think in a sort of pulling the lens back in a broader sense, um, a lot of the reporting that, that, you know, we've been pulling out of there and the things we're finding are sort of against uh, a popular narrative that they had done. And you see that, you know, with, with the COVID thread that I did and lots of reporting that Michael had done. And so I think it's not even about like specific articles that were embarrassing, but the sort of like broader um, narrative that had been going on on a whole variety of topics. And, you know, to me, what's interesting is the last time I checked, my thread on Twitter had more than 60 million views. And even if they thought the revelations that I had in there, and I'm sure Michael's threads have that and then some, because he's done you know, a ton of reporting on this. Even if they thought this was a quote, nothing burger, the fact that it had so much attention um, within this platform shows that this is a story in and of itself. So it's fascinating to me how, at least from what I've observed, these, these, uh, most of the Twitter files has basically been ignored and dismissed. And I think that's strange, even if they think the content is unimportant, the mere fact that these threads are getting tens of millions of views um, is a story in and of itself that they're not covering. Michael, um, I have been struck by, in, in reading your dispatches and then in reporting I've done on Facebook, what went on there, the level, the amount of pressure coming from people within uh, federal agencies, 
the CDC, the FBI, the White House at times, uh, for years, influencing decisions about COVID, about elections, about, uh, about what you're able to say about those subjects, uh, Hunter Biden, et cetera. And, and what both you and David and Taibbi and Li Fang and others have, have shown is that there was actually internal debate in Twitter about how to handle these things. And there was pushback. There was resistance from people, including Yul Roth, who was very uh, you know, demonized, and I think correctly called out for some mistakes he, he might have made. But then you also see examples of people saying, look, this is, we're not going to go along with this. They're, they're whipping up the Russia stuff out of, out of nowhere. And, uh, and then, they have, then they cave after the pressure gets amped up. So what is, yeah. you know, what is your takeaway from, from having seen and get, getting such an inside glimpse of how a company responds in real time to, to the, the tremendous power of the federal government? Well, it's absolutely chilling. I mean, this is a situation you have to understand that uh, Congress and the White House was repeatedly threatening to basically take away from the internet platforms the legal basis of their existence, which of course is the Section 230, which gives the internet company, the, the web, sorry, the platforms um, and, and the internet companies uh, uh, liability protection from being sued for slander or for copyright violations by people. So I think there's a confusion. People think the New York Times and Twitter are both media companies, they're not. Twitter has a special status. Facebook has special status under this under this Section 230. And so what you saw was Facebook, particularly, I mean, egregious, you saw Facebook executives showing the White House and explaining to the White House that we are censoring accurate information about COVID because we don't want it to encourage vaccine hesitancy. So they're literally going to the White House and saying, look, look, we're trying to censor accurate information. You saw Twitter uh, censoring and flagging content on uh, um, uh, Marshall Kil Martin Kildorf, who's this Harvard professor, just saying maybe not everybody needs to be vaxxed, a totally reasonable decision. So yeah, you saw Yoel Roth and others inside Twitter pushing back against it, but ultimately caving in. I think that's important to realize. You saw both on the decision to deplatform Trump and also on the decision to censor the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop. Ultimately, they decided that these tweets in question had not violated Twitter's own terms of service and then decided anyway to deplatform the president and to censor the Hunter Biden laptop. So it's chilling. I don't, I'm not a legal expert. I can't say whether there's a violation of the First Amendment. But when you're pressuring those companies and threatening their whole, their entire existence and then making demands, including also deplatforming Alex Berenson, another uh, COVID uh, skeptic, COVID critic, um, making those demands, it starts to look like a violation of the First Amendment to me. It has to be worked out in court. It will be worked out in court, but it certainly merits more investigation. And the final thing I'll say is, Something that I found a lot of agreement, by the way, on left and right, is that there needs to be um, absolute transparency by these media companies as a condition for them being protected under Section 230. Transparency into how content moderation decisions are being made. Those are not, um, that's not intellectual proprietary information. These are human decisions being made by the platforms with massive ramifications. There may be other regulations that are required, but at a minimum, there needs to be transparency, and I think that's something that people that are really concerned about civil liberties um, and concerned about misinformation alike uh, could agree on. David, I just wanted to ask one last question. We've mentioned a lot of, I, I would characterize them as bad faith uh, critics of the reporting on the Twitter files, the selection of journalists, you know, perhaps professional je jealousy playing a role, et cetera. But one person who I think has been a real 
um, ally of this effort and um, of uh, creating transparency and free speech absolutism is Lynn Greenwald, who I interviewed on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you know, quote, I would probably not have felt totally comfortable, to be honest, with the way the Twitter files was done. I'm not willing to be manipulated by the possibility that people are handpicking what they want me to see or what they don't want me to see. And he went on to contextualize that more, and people should listen to his full full remarks. But, uh, you know, he, he said that I had asked him whether he would be comfortable being one of the Twitter files journalists, and he had some concerns about what information would ultimately be getting to him. You made reference to the process of watching as documents were called and provided to you. Is that what happened in each instance, that while the document searches were being run, you were there to review the process? Or is it possible, or, and are there any concerns amongst you, that ultimately there was some kind of pre-filtering or any kind of post-search filtering that prevented perhaps some newsworthy documents that might have painted a different picture of the nature of the censorship um, having gotten to you? Um, yeah, good question. So there are a number of different things that we were searching for, and each of those things had a different process in place. So the engineer was looking up different accounts when we were trying to look at whether there were certain sort of um, tags labeled on specific tweets and on specific accounts. So that's one type of search that was being done through this sort of special viewfinder. Um, a different type of search was looking at these like really large aggregate pots of emails and Slack channel communications. Those were done not in the room with us. It is entirely possible that um, some sort of very sophisticated process was done in the interim of when we would make the request and then they quickly went in and somehow deleted specific tweets and then sent us you know, the thing. I, I don't know enough about you know, the sort of technical aspect to pull something like that off. Um, but as Michael said, I think, you know, I mean, we were getting emails, we're talking about thousands and thousands. We're getting just massive documents of, um, of Slack channel communications. I think it would have been very, and it's not like they had it and then sent it to us three weeks later. We're talking about all this was happening on the fly. So yes, it's theoretically possible if I didn't watch someone doing it in front of me. But I would say, isn't that the case in pretty much any sort of whistleblower thing? Someone's giving you information. Um, it's, there's always going to be some hurdles, some challenges. Um, in whether when the New York Times reports on something or a zillion other places, when some sort of insider or whistleblower is giving you content, um, if there's, there always will be some unknown, I suspect, and you use your best judgment as a journalist and as an intelligent person to figure out, well, how likely is it that this content was filtered in some manner? But the process that we went through, or at least that I went through, is you know as I described, and people can um, use their own judgment if they think that that's not reliable. Yeah, I think that's completely fair, although I do think there's a distinction between, let's say, a whistleblower at the FBI blowing the whistle on the FBI or the NSA or something like that, and the CEO of the FBI, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the person who's running the institution, kind of opening uh, the kimono, as it were. But, like, I appreciate but both the whistleblower of you. can have an agenda, too. Oh, yeah, it of course, be, but it's, you know. it's, there's, uh, inherent in it is a conflict of interest between them and their yeah. employer, and that's why they're whistleblowing. And so if... If Edward, you know, if, if right. um, Chelsea Manning deleted emails that showed that she was taking three-hour lunch breaks, yeah, maybe that's yeah. significant. I mean, that, that is, have it, the same. It, you know, employer dissatisfaction be, is a major motivator yeah. of whistleblower behavior. So that yeah. is something that. But you know, my my interest in knowing yeah. something like bad about Chelsea Manning's personal behavior is not quite yeah. the same as the overlapping interest I would argue between. Uh, 
Twitter and the CEO of yeah. Twitter. But we appreciate both of you uh, spending yeah, so much very, time Yeah, uh, very uh, illustrative. Thank you so much, uh, Michael, David. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. We'll, we'll have, have more, more rising. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Ah! <laughs> we'll have more rising for you right after this. The College Board is stripping down its AP curriculum for African-American studies, removing much of the subject matter that angered conservatives and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who expressed heavy criticism of the AP course and banned its teaching in the state of Florida. Uh, we have a response, of course, from the women at The View, namely Whoopi Goldberg. Let's listen to that now. Um, I, I, I don't understand why he believes that he wants people to see the, the history of Western civilization and history and philosophy of Western civilization, because he, he wants it seen through that lens. Why is your lens better than my lens? <laughs> what, what, you know, so you're basically saying, like to people like Marion Croak, you're not going to teach about her. Her history is American history. <laughs> what, what is it that he doesn't get? We're not going anywhere. Just because you stop teaching it in the colleges, you think people are going to stop telling these stories? You're, a, you're, no, it's not going to happen. The names of many black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism were removed from the curriculum, and the study of Black Lives Matter is optional, according to the New York Times. This comes after DeSantis on Tuesday announced a proposed overhaul of Florida's higher education system that would eliminate what he called ideological conformity. If enacted, courses in Western civilization would be mandated, diversity and equity programs would be eliminated, and the protections of tenure would be reduced. President of the NAACP uh, Legal Defense and Education Fund, Janae Will Nelson, said in her recent essay for The New York Times, Ron DeSantis wants to erase black history. Why? Uh, now, despite what Whoopi said, they, they are Western figures, right? If, if people, African-American yeah, contributors to our, which, to our culture count as yeah. Western civilization. Which, which raises the question. America's Western, Western civilization. Which, which raises the question, why are these authors, if they are part of the Western canon that Ron DeSantis and others think are so important to teach, why are, they, why are these members of the black Western canon being excised in this way? I mean, take a look at some of these names. There's some very mainstream figures like uh, Alice Walker, are we no longer allowed to teach the book The Color Purple uh, in in school? Uh, but you, that's not, but you are still allowed to teach that book. This is part of the a specific curriculum. I mean, there's a little, I, I think it's being slightly mischaracterized what happened here. They came up with a new curriculum for a specific course, AP African American Studies, and Ron DeSantis and the, the, the government of Florida said they didn't like that curriculum, the course, they, didn't, they did not like the curriculum, so it was restructured by the AP, and the new one is slightly different. Not, I mean, Robbie, it's not slightly different. The names on this list, Alice Walker, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Nikki Giovanni, Michelle Alexander, it's difficult, Barbara Fields, it's difficult to imagine how you would teach a course on AP African American Studies without including these people's names. Many of these people aren't especially radical. I mean, they're historians. They write books. Michelle Alexander wrote, uh, is, is the, I think, perhaps the, the biggest, most um, prolific chronicler of uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and the goings-on at Monticello. I mean, it's, it's an historical account of 
one of our founding fathers, but you aren't allowed to talk about it? You're not allowed to reference no, you, your books? You or are. Books it just in the, in got the dropped from the official curriculum for no, this one course. it got excluded from the curriculum for this for. for not, it's a course. It's a curriculum. It's a it's yes. a bo it's a it's a body of, of study, and so you have because of pressure. I mean, you just were talking about in, an, in another segment about what it means for the government to be threatening Twitter with stripping its status unless it has certain content moderation policies. Here you have the governor of a state exerting pressure on what students learn, not because of a, an academic. It's not, it's not being criticized as academically unrigorous or substantively not academically valuable, but because of his pressure and his personal peccadilloes about this stuff, right. he's not he's not going in and saying you can't say white people are evil or or any of those kind of specific claims that have been made that are perhaps overreaches, but saying entire authors authors are being excluded from an AP African American history I, curriculum. I think conservatives say the difference. This is the government which is voted on or selected by the people saying what is going to be part of the curriculum for this subject being taught in government schools. And All right. that is not, now you okay, might so object when, to that. I don't particularly, <laughs> would I have kept the original curriculum? Would I have said schools couldn't use the original curriculum if I was the governor of Florida? No, obviously not. Conservatives but understand that's what they're doing. that this is authoritarian conservative, uh, I mean, authoritarian uh, overreach. When it, if it if it were SUNY University, a New York State school that banned discussing, I, I can't even imagine the equivalent because a liberal would never say you're not allowed to talk about Thomas Jefferson, you're not allowed to talk about ancient Greece, you're not allowed to do a, Again, a course they didn't on World say War You're not II. allowed to talk about any we're, of these we're, people. We're They're just ban, not part of the. We're going to ban James Joyce. We're going to ban Shakespeare. We're going to ban Philip Roth. We're going to ban white men from the curriculum. They would obviously understand that that was an that the, the state has no role in making those kind of academic decisions. This is, this is the, the professors I mean, I've, I've that read, have been I've hired. I've read about a trillion stories about universities deciding that the curriculum is too much white dead males, too much Shakespeare type people, and has yeah. to be revised to take them out. Yeah, I've never seen so. a list of, of Shakespeare and, and, and other white male writers precluded from study. Encouraging people to diversify the subject matter, people having an interest personally in diversifying the subject matter is a very different thing than a governor. Again, I, a I think governor having he an was diversifying this because the initial it's curriculum. It's African-American studies. No, right, it's within, no, di <laughs> no, doing, diversifying the viewpoints expressed and the, this, this, is, this is equivalent. That's what they said. This it is was equivalent to say this is, this, is e this is an AP English literature class. Mm -hmm. And then saying, oh, we're, we're not going to study, you can't talk about the Bronte sisters, you can't talk about Shakespeare, you can't talk about like some of the, the, the most prolific and important English authors that exist. That is what this list is equivalent to. It makes no sense. It's nonsense. We're, 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 we're going we're gonna, to, here's, here's a, um, Again, uh, not Hellenic, so you can't talk Hellenic about them, they're just not class, in the curriculum. But we're going to cross off the Odyssey. It's, I mean, it's a, I it's mean people absurd. complain about what's left out of various curriculums all the time. I mean, I, there, there will be a, like the, the a, what you just said, the AP English literature curriculum changes from year to year, and it might have, it does not have, maybe one year it doesn't have the Brontes in it or something else, people complain. But you do have to make choices. I mean, you only have however many days a who, year to who educate gets, who children. Who has to make choices? Who has to make choices? The academics. The authority. The, the well, then that's an okay. Then that's another objection. An objection that the government would have anything to do with this. Sure, we can have government that, that, have nothing to do with education. Fine no, by me. That, Robbie, 
the government, the governor should not be dictating. I don't think this is a particularly controversial point. The governor's role of a state is not to dictate the curriculum that is happening in discrete AP courses in schools. They don't have the expertise, frankly, to weigh in. I'm not sure why anybody would want that to happen. I don't think the expertise happen. argument is very persuasive to people. It's persuasive to me because anybody who would cross okay. Kianga Yamada Taylor and Alice Walker off of a reading list is a moron. I'm sorry. It's it's ridiculous. It hasn't been the color. Okay, but there purple, is a finite minute, number of things minute. you can get to the color, in the year. So let the teachers decide. Why are you preemptively, Robbie? Like well, this is clearly authority. Decide. No, you are preemptively saying we're going to exclude these these authors from the curriculum. This is not, hey guys, pick and choose what you want. If that were it, this wouldn't be a story. This wouldn't be a news story if everyone had the freedom to design their curriculum the way they've always designed their curriculum. What he's saying is we, can we do don't that want that with you. universal school choice. What he's saying is we don't want you, we're gonna dictate that you're, if you wanna go to a public education, which is one of the only affordable ways that most, peop, uh, most people in this country can even dream of getting a college education and all the benefits that accrue, is to study exactly what the governor ideologically of a state wants you to study. That is an, an incredible authoritarian overreach. And if, you, if people can't, you know, don't want to admit that, then I think that they are grossly understating what kind of public pressures exist and what, how their lives can be controlled and looking very short-sightedly at what's coming for them next. Because I promise you, I promise you that if like the, the exact same people who are kicking and screaming about the idea that their kid has to play on a soccer team with a trans girl or anything like this or are going to turn the other way and are, are not concerned about the fact that literally what their children are able to learn is just coming straight out of the mind of Ron DeSantis or whatever conservative wants to cherry pick. I think a lot of conservatives do want that. I, I think there is a sentiment broadly among Republicans that for a long time, the institutions which are supposed to be viewpoint neutral have been uh, uh, abused by Democrats to foster. I, I'm, I'm giving you what, how yeah. Republicans feel about this. This is their approach. These institutions were supposed to be viewpoint neutral, but they've actually been captured and are advancing democratic values, so now we are in places where we actually have a majority, where we've won a governing mandate. We are going to, to actually direct government-run schools. The governments, controlled by Republicans, will direct government-run schools government, to promote it's our not values. A, it's not a government-run school. It's a publicly funded school. Something being publicly funded does not give you the right to ideologically exert your will. We have a lot of Supreme Court— I think Court, a lot of taxpayers will say we otherwise. Have a lot Court, of citizens will say that makes no sense. We have a lot of Supreme Court law on this, in fact. The government has been restricted from saying things like, oh, you have a highway in your state, so you have to do whatever the federal government wants. And traditionally, conservatives have pushed back against that and the way that federal dollars are used to direct the behaviors of people in the states. That was the whole point of federalism. But what we consistently see from conservatives is that they don't actually care about those basic principles of self-determination and allowing people to make decisions about what they learn and what they care about, what books to open, and whether or not and we're going to become do? fascist nights. They'll say Democrats do because Democrats were getting their way under the current no, no, no. system. Democrats never made federalist arguments. That was the federalism States, well, states to themselves was always a Well, the Republicans a say, don't, you're not going to hold us to Federalist arguments that you do, yourselves don't care about. No. I, the hypocrisy here is on Republicans. Republicans are the ones that they said they care about freedom, that they care about all of these things. So right now, they're the ones that are sitting in their hypocrisy, not liberals. At the end of the day, they're the ones who said that they, 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 would, they would bulk at the idea of this. And if they want school choice, if they don't want their kids learning about 
black people, <laughs> basic black scholars, the fundamental normal everyday, it's black, a black history class where some of the most important black historians in the history of the, of the world are not included. Well, then they can also do the school choice thing and, and go to a private institution. Why is it the people that's are, fine by me. Own, right. But you just said the opposite. You just said that people who want to learn about these people should have to leave the public institutions, which are their tax dollars that are going there. I didn't say that. I'm giving voice to what the Republican criticism is. Okay. Well, my, my response to that Republican criticism is that it's deeply hypocritical. And there before the grace of God go you. And if you don't want a world where some liberal governor is going to say that your child can't learn about you can't, can't read the Federalist Papers because the writers of the Federalist Papers were racist, then you should think really hard about en endorsing this uh, kind of a the policy. The Republican view is one way or another it's come to that anyway. It obviously hasn't. It hasn't. There is one party that is banning books in this country. There is one party that is literally writing laws that preclude you from learning about certain subject matters. And that's the Republican Party. Show me the book burning, the, the book banning bill from Democrats. Show it to me. It's not a show bill. Me. What it is is show, de show it's me. Democrats writing letters to Amazon to take oh, off this okay. book off the thing. Okay. It's a soft pressure being applied. Okay. The so result is the same. So you're admitting it. There, you're, you're equating legislation to ban books with soft pressure to ask Amazon. I'm I telling you Republicans don't care. That's the thing. I'm telling I, you that I, it's, I, the I result would is never, the same and they don't care. I would never defend that soft pressure. I have talked on this show aggressively, spiritedly, about how even that that apparently anti-Semitic movie about that Kyrie Irving, Irving, Irving tweeted out should not be bullied off of Amazon. I have been very yeah. principled and consistent in my view. Well, and what I'm, not... I'm calling on people to do is the same. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I'm against that soft pressure, and I'm against doing all this via legislation. I'm so just you're, trying to you're, articulate you're, what— you're, you're against this policy. I said well. I wouldn't—I said I would have let the original AP curriculum they put forth be fine. If schools want to use it, use it. If they don't want to use it, they, if they want to use a modified one or the original one or do their own thing, I don't care. That's fine. I want to let everyone have the educational experience they want to have, preferably with the money following them rather than the system. But yes, I don't object to it. Yeah, well, it's a really remarkable. We'll continue to, to, to follow this and see if there's any backlash here the same way that some of the focus on the trans legislation really seems to have hurt and some of these culture warrior issues that hurt uh, Republicans in midterms. Is this what the people of Florida really want or is it the uh, minimum wage that they voted 60% of them uh, to get oh, as yeah, they voted get, for Trump to get that in, in there, 2020? Huh? Yes. All right, well, we'll have more rising for you after this. The Memphis Police Department unit that's responsible for the beating death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols was part of a division that operated with an annual budget of more than $28 million a year from the time of its creation in 2021 till it was disbanded over the weekend. This is according to reporting from Akela Lacey in The Intercept. The Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods, or Scorpion Unit, follows a trend in policing in which highly armed groups of officers are dispatched to high crime areas areas that tend to be home to black and brown residents. Here to break down more of a reporting on the matter is politics reporter for The Intercept, Intercept Akela Lacey. Akela, welcome to Rising. Hi, thanks for having me. So we, we see that number, 28 million. It's, it's incredible. Can you talk about what the intended goals of this kind of a unit are and how widespread the creation of these units have been uh, across the country? Yeah, so this unit was officially launched in November 2021 in response to both protests against police brutality in 2020 and also a spike in homicides in Memphis um, and in other cities around the country. 
this unit was specifically supposed to target, you know, you, you mentioned these quote unquote hotspot crime areas um, where they would use data on crime to, you know, figure out where to dispatch officers. Um, the intention of the unit is to crack down on violent crimes. Um, we know that this unit was doing a traffic stop at the time, um, which I, uh, apparently it started doing more of um, because of budget constraints in different areas, which I, I haven't reported a lot on that, but found out a little bit more about that after the story came out. Um, but yeah, these types of units uh, have been popping up all across the country. One such unit was also responsible for the raid that killed Breonna Taylor in 2020, um, a similar sort of you know crime reduction strategy um, in Louisville there where they launched uh, this unit. And the, the trend you know in Memphis and in the Louisville unit was that these officers um, don't necessarily have uh, you know specialized training to 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 do sort of the mission that these units are, are set out to do. Um, and they're also subject to, you know, special funding. Um, this this particular unit in Memphis is part of a broader special operations division um, that got $28 million, and now it's obviously been disbanded over, over the weekend. Mm. Yeah, in your uh, article for The Intercept, you said that a former cop said the, the training consists of three days of PowerPoint presentations, one day of training in suspect apprehension, and then one day at a firing range. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if people to sort of steel man the case for spending more money on specialized law enforcement in high crime areas, you would want the best trained police, police officers, the ones who have the most experience um, defusing tense and potentially violent situations without them getting out of hand, not like the, the, the newest guys, the most rookie people being thrown into the most uh, potentially uh, criminal or violent or messy situations, uh, but that appears to be uh, uh, what you have. Um, can, can you speak to more of like what the philosophy was behind the training? Yeah, so this was um, that that bit of reporting was actually from a former uh, Memphis cop who spoke to CBS News, and so um, we included that in our reporting. But basically, you know, that that person, according to that source, they they said that because you know a lot of older officers were retiring on this on this force in Memphis, uh, they were manning this special unit with younger officers with little training, um, which, you know, I, we can speculate as to sort of the philosophy here. I, I didn't hear back from the, the police department, but, um, you know, there's been talk, you know, from police departments um, about sort of morale issues, how they're trying to, um, you know, combat the number of people who have been quitting police forces since uh, 2020 protests. And, you know, I, I can I can speculate and say that it seems like, um, you know, the, the reason that this unit didn't have, uh, you know, what we would consider to be specialized training for for its particular mandate um, has to do with staffing issues um, and also with, you know, what the police are saying is is a morale issue. But, you know, to your point, um, that is that a reason to, you know, give additional money to this unit um, that clearly, you know, it, no, I didn't, didn't do what it was set out to do to the point where it, it's been closed down less than two years after it was. Well, and if, it and was, if you're going to give started. additional money, you know, why not spend it on recruiting or retaining the best performing officers or the ones with the best track record of, of not 
escalating standoffs and situations, um, uh, pay them more and better, rather than what it sounds like it was spent on, which is like neater gear. I mean, by neater gear, I mean more like militarized, militarized. gear, mm -hmm. and then just throwing the kind of hothead new guys at the problem, which seems like an absolute recipe for disaster. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Bree. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, Robbie, I mean, part of what you're describing here is this fundamentally um, skewed matchup between uh, stated goals and actual behavior. And frankly, a failure to, I think, properly define goals and design a program to meet those goals. So what you're seeing is people who are engaged in a traffic stop. I really don't want to lose sight of the specific instance that brought us here today to talk about it. There has, as of yet, been there's been no clarification of what Tyree was allegedly doing. They, they've claimed it was erratic driving, but that is an incredibly inspecific charge. He was not armed. He had no criminal record. There's no accusation of there being a taillight out or anything else that would um, motivate a stop. Moreover, this is a unit that's been given, given an incredible amount of funding. 39% of this entire city's budget is going to uh, this police effort. And they're being tasked with traffic stops is, is, is this what funding the police harder is intended to do? Stop, pull people on the side of the road and then create these situations where there's a standoff between a militarized police force and an individual who is minding their own business that is kind of bound to go wrong? I mean, I, I, this is what's really confusing to me, Akela. What, 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 what is, you, you give someone SWAT gear, you give someone you know, special equipment, you give someone increased funding, you, you send them, a, put them in a patrol car in a pack, and you send them out into the world without a goal, without tracking down the specific, oh, here's drug dealers that, that are running this scheme, et cetera, et cetera. They're just out there. I mean, help us. I, I'm really struggling to understand how this was at all designed to have any outcome other than the, the tragic outcome that we saw with Tyree Nichols. Uh, well, I'll make two points. One, I mean, to, to your point, this was the response to protests for police reform, right? This was the response to, um, you know, what happened in 2020. And, and also the, 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 the part of that response that included um, an increase in homicides during, during the pandemic. So, I mean, the police chief, when she, she was, you know, uh, presenting a, a budget proposal to the city council back in May, discussed how effective this unit had been. Um, the police department touted that this unit had made, you know, more than 500 arrests, uh, you know, in the, its first year. And so it's pretty clear that the metrics that the police department was going by for success here was, can we arrest as many people as possible um, to give the perception that we're doing something about, you know, crime and we're doing something about people's concerns. Um, and yes, to the point about, you know, we, we still don't really understand why they were making the traffic stop or what, if any pretext there was for that stop. But again, over and over again, you know, two years, two years after worldwide protests against police brutality, we're sitting here talking about, you know, what, what exactly led the police to, to, um, to kill another young unarmed black man. Um, I think the, the philosophy of, not knowing, throwing money at the problem and not really specifying how that's actually going to fix it has been the crux of of the criticisms of the continued increases in funding to these departments. And so, you know, we can hope that that, you know, it, this will 
continue to to push the conversation forward. But um, you know, I think the the disbandment of the unit is certainly you know a new. Um, response that we haven't seen that sort of swift response, but uh, again, it was you know only after they released the body cam footage of of what was truly um, a horrifying and disgusting beating that obviously killed an, an innocent man. And am I to understand this police chief? Uh, this is a black uh, black woman running the police department. This is a it, it's their democratic leadership in the city. And this is yeah. a response. This this feels like that tale as old as time. Democratic Party response to double down and try to out conservative conservatives. We see this kind of result. And and you mentioned that the metric of success was number of stops. We've seen how that, as a as a kind of motivating goal, has led to so much disaster and so much so many efforts by cities to basically earn money and recoup fees by stopping people pulling over. Usually poor, low-income, working-class people for traffic stops so that they're caught in a cycle of fines. That's exactly what happened in the Philando Castile case. And it's tragic um, that, that that kind of motive is still driving police forces to date. Thank you so much for joining us, Akela. Thank you for having me. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Federal government funds virus hunting activities in the field where researchers come into contact with bats harboring unknown uh, viruses. Do these research activities pose a risk of human spill spillover? And I wanted to ask Dr. Parker that question. Well, I would say certainly the uh, people who are not uh, collecting the viruses are uh, wearing proper PPE and adhering to all the safety requirements. So that's, that's a must that they need to do that. And there's too many examples that we've seen that maybe that's not happening, particularly I would say in low income countries. That was Dr. Gerald Parker of the NIH being grilled before the House Oversight Committee Wednesday on the origins of the pandemic. The questioning comes following a Government Accountability Office report that revealed the risks associated with research efforts on the field aiming to find the origin on the pandemic. In question is whether scientists tasked with the controversial work end up causing harm, such as human spillover. The report also found that the Herculean task of getting to the bottom of where COVID-19 came from comes with reputational harm. An excerpt of the report reads, quote, some researchers told us that they faced criticism because of their involvement in investigating the origin of the pandemic, particularly when their conclusions were considered controversial. These researchers said they and others may be reluctant to participate in further investigations because of personal and professional risks, which is very concerning and very yeah. damning. And it's something we've worried about, that the scientific establishment has so much at stake, clearly likes doing the kind of research that many people think is very risky and could have brought about this entire pandemic that was funded by the U.S. government that was conducted in substandard uh, sa not safe enough labs in foreign countries. And of course, those people are going to disdain, try to try to gatekeep, uh, try to girl boss gaslight, <laughs> do whatever to stop the investigation. What, what do girl bosses have to do with this? <laughs> I was just doing the whole the whole saying. Yeah, look, it, it, it obviously has been a problem. The fact that to even talk about um, lab leak theory, let's say a year ago before, you know, like back in 2021, basically got you written off as a kook. And it's part of why people like Jeffrey Sachs, who are 
you know, more credible establishment figures um, getting into this. He's leading the, 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 the Lab League Origin investigation over at Lancet, again, a reputable, established mm -hmm. scientific magazine. The fact that he's been so open about talking about this and really pushing the investigation to finding the truth here, it lends so much credibility. And it's important precisely because people who have been trying to ask questions about this for so long have taken such a personal hit to their reputation, et cetera. So people who have a little bit more reputational protect, protection being willing to get into the fray and reporters who have that protection reporting on it has meant a lot mm -hmm. uh, and even getting any airing, any hearing on these issues at all. Yeah, we talked about earlier this week, uh, new reporting, again, from the government, this was in my radar, from the government, confirmed by the New York Times that there was not additional review for the, the grants that EcoHealth Alliance was getting from the federal government that was making full research. Uh, they should have been subjected to additional high-risk scrutiny, that they weren't, that there was failure on both the government side because they should have done that. And then with what EcoHealth was doing, um, there was earlier reporting from the, the Intercept when they released all of those, those documents mm -hmm. and emails of EcoHealth Alliance that they were not following the pandemic mitigation, the mask wearing. They did not follow that when dealing with the, the, the bats, the infected bats. Yeah. It, it's pretty amazing now that we're all, you know, you're, you're looked at, uh, not so much now, but although, some, although there are mm -hmm. out corners of the internet who feel that way about people not wearing masks. But, but these people that when dealing with the actual infected bats, we're not practicing proper safety protocols. Yeah, apparently there are, are these like tiers of safety in these labs, like tiers of protection um, based on the kinds of materials, viruses, et cetera, that they're working with and how communicable they are. And one of you know the things that came out of some of this reporting is that you know even at first glance, without having particular expertise or doing a deep dive into what was going on in some of these places, that there just was a mis mismatch between the kind of facilit facilities that were being used and the level of protection available in those facilities and the kinds of work that they were doing. That should have been a red flag for folks. So yeah, I, I mean, look, again, Part of me is skeptical that we'll ever really find out what happened here just because the liability implications are just too enormous. Um, but it seems clear that going forward, there needs to be some kind of accountability and people need to uh, cross their, their, their T's and dot their I's because this is not the last time. Look, there's going to be research that is risky in some way that is probably socially beneficial. And I don't want there to be a swing in the other direction where we're not trying to solve cancer, we're not trying to do some kind of research or, or do uh, any kind of uh, disease preparedness or prevention because people are too um, scared of, the, uh, of some kind of leak. There are methods that are proven to prevent these kinds of accidents from happening, and I think we need to know more about why those things weren't in place despite ample opportunity to have corrections and, and warnings being promulgated. They weren't even—this comes from a, a book a journalist wrote who, who went along with the scientists to the caves where they collected the bats, mm -hmm. and he said that nobody was wearing masks. Nobody was wearing hazmat suits. No one was wearing any sort of protective equipment. The people going into the caves to collect the samples for lab study— we're not wearing any protective equipment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's wild. I, that's wild. Do, do we know who was being sent in there? I mean, because I mean, there are these patterns that we see where this is kind of like a workplace protection issue. Also, are there different tiers of employees? Are they sending kind of locals into the cave to get the bats and not extending the same kind of protections that people in a lab setting would have? Not to mention the people in the lab setting themselves didn't have the right kind of protection. I mean, I, this is exactly the kind of thing that we need to know more about. I'm so glad these investigations and these hearings are finally happening. Um, 
because it's, again, science is not gonna stop tomorrow. <laughs> we, need, we need to fix this problem. This isn't something that can be buried or just halted altogether. Mm. More rising right after this. Yesterday, former President Trump issued a forceful statement calling for de-escalation of the war in Ukraine. Let's watch. The situation in Ukraine is very dangerous, explosive, and escalating by the day. Joe Biden's weakness and incompetence has brought us to the brink of nuclear war, and now Biden is doing what he said 10 months ago would lead to World War III. He is sending in American tanks. It's far past the time for all parties involved to pursue a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine before this already horrific catastrophe spirals out of control and ends up leading, indeed, to World War III. And this would be a war like no other war, because this would be a nuclear war. As I have said many times before, Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have never happened if I was in the White House. Not even thinkable, not even a possibility. We must end this ridiculous war and demand peace in Ukraine now before it gets worse. And believe it or not, it would be easy to do. It would be very easy to do. So Trump there is saying things that you and I have said numerous times on this show for months. Isn't it interesting that Trump is the political figure with instincts on this issue that seem to match our instincts, that I believe match the instincts of a great many Americans in both the Republican and Democratic Party. You know, you wonder why this man has crossover appeal. We don't wonder, but some people wonder, and they, may, they can't understand the person who votes for Obama and then votes for him. They can't understand Democrats who would vote for him. They just don't get that wars are unpopular, that yeah. the American people don't want to spend money on this forever. They don't like the effect it has on energy prices and food prices. They don't see as clearly, I guess, as the blob, the clear national security rationalization for doing this. And, uh, and they think that with greater pushing, you could make a peace deal happen, that the president of the United States should be working harder, even if it means Ukraine gives up something, to have a peace deal in place before it escalates to, to World War III. That is exactly what Trump just said. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know entirely uh, if it's true that uh, Putin just ne never would have. Uh, yeah, except that, that, that part is Trump bluster. I don't know if you that's know, like, true, there, but, but the rest there, of it there may or may not be an argument. I don't really know. You know, was was mm -hmm. Trump doing less of the kind of NATO baiting? Um, you know, it might be the case that even if Putin did invade while Trump was president, Trump would have declined to get involved. That is an option, of course, when um, Russia uh, annexed Crimea. Obama chose not to get involved. There's certainly precedents for a, a U.S. non-involvement. And it does seem like Trump's traditional, more isolationist stance wouldn't have gone unchanged if he were president during the scenario, which would put us in a very different situation. And of course, everything that he said about the potential escalation into World War III is true. I think that too often the critique of U.S. military involvement in Ukraine is centered on you know, a debate about whether or not people who want the U.S. not to be involved are humanitarian enough, care enough about the fate of the Ukrainian people, or sympathetic to Russia, or Putin puppets. This, this debate goes all round and round in circles over here. And the one concern that never really gets addressed and that people who defend U.S. Uh, involvement never really contend with is what is the worst thing that could happen? 
are we inching ourselves closer? Are we, are we turning the doomsday, the doomsday, uh, the doomsday clock dial too close to midnight for our comfort? Even if you believe you know, everything goes swimmingly, there's no actual conflict with Russia, direct conflict between two nuclear powers, that this is moral and justified and something we should be doing. I would feel a lot more confident in that assessment if there were any acknowledgement of how we've come close already with the claims that this missile hit Ukraine, but it turns out to be one of Ukraine's own missiles. Okay, what happens next time? What happens next time? And, and we already see Joe Biden making these kind of um, escalatory statements about how the U.S. would get involved if, um, if China were to um, make territorial claims in Taiwan. We saw Nancy Pelosi making this trip there and, and creating this kind of global escalation. Biden's had to be, walk back some of his statements about conflict with China and defending Taiwan because his own advisors have told him that this is a dangerous geopolitical uh, quagmire that he's walking ourselves into. And all of this happening around the world at the same time, it just shows a real indifference to how cataclysmic the and world-ending the effects of a nuclear conflict with it, Russia it would can be. be. It can be morally justified to do something yes. without being smart strategic. to yeah. do something, without being strategic. And that is the distinction I think people are missing. Because, of, of course, I think the Ukrainian people have a right to defend themselves. Um, in an ideal world, would, would helping them if that would be best for the entire world and for our own safety and have no downsides, then sure. But we're worried about what this is going to result in, and we're worried that this is just going to go on forever anyway. And in the long run, more people will die because we couldn't bring it to the negotiating table. And, and that's what Trump was, uh, was outlining there. You know, it's interesting, especially because we're talking a lot lately with the new Twitter files about how obsessed with the Russia influence narrative a lot of the mainstream media was. So you can, you can imagine a world in which uh, Trump's ability to talk to Putin or have some kind of different outcome here in an alternate reality would have been perceived as a bad thing by yeah. the media. Yeah. Right. They would have he's said he's coddling yeah. Putin. He's negotiating yeah. with terrorists. He's, yeah. Yeah. You definitely, you definitely can't imagine it. And look, something you said earlier about uh, how how the the media doesn't understand Trump's appeal. I see comments every single day of my life in the comment sections of my video and my 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 mentions on Twitter, et cetera, about how I would vote. I would have voted for for Bernie or Trump. Yeah. I would still, you know, I I, I would vote for Bernie or Trump. I would I would vote for Bernie or Trump over DeSantis. I would vote for Bernie or Trump over Marion Williamson. I would vote for Bernie or Trump over whatever options being flung at the wall, um, because both of these figures had that that sense of where the the kind of the unspoken, the silent majority, if you will, are on issues like like this one. And it would be nice if there were someone who wasn't Donald Trump who was carrying this mantle. Um, from my perspective, he's, he's not an advocate for, advocate for the policies that I would prefer to see. Um, but we saw what happened with the CPC letter. A couple of progressives get together and say something eminently reasonable along these lines, just warning, hey, we got to have a strategy. We have to have an exit plan. We're worried about nuclear conflict. And the liberal establishment clobbers them. Yeah. Well, of course, Fox News' Tucker Carlson jumped into the fray after Trump's statement, taking aim at Senator Lindsey Graham for his hawkish stance on the war. Let's watch that. We're almost in World War I-type battle conditions in the East. It's impossible, in my view, to dislodge the Russians uh, by the Ukrainians unless they have tanks. We also believe that uh, longer-range rockets will help 
uh, stop the counteroffensive that is building in the east. The goal is to dislodge the Russians from Ukraine by helping the Ukrainian military uh, in that endeavor, give them the weapons they need to beat the Russians on the battlefield. So there he is standing with fake war hero Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, who may be almost as liberal as Lindsey Graham. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an impromptu press conference. It was part of a strategy. And not long after that, Joe Biden indeed dutifully sent the tanks. Now, Lindsey Graham is demanding that the Pentagon send F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Arming the Ukrainian military with F-16s would mean direct American involvement in a war against nuclear-armed Russia. From there, it is a direct and possibly very short line to a nuclear exchange. It is lunacy. True lunacy. But it's also Lindsey Graham's stated position. He's an utterly committed neocon. Neocon politics are what he cares about to the exclusion of everything else. He has no children. He's not worried about the future. And he's a big fan of Trump, but is also the, the by far the most hawkish voice in the room at any moment, and, and probably the most hawkish person who has access to Trump because of his sycophantic behavior, frankly, toward yeah. the former president during his time in office. And e even since, I heard him the other day saying he would love to see Trump run again. Unfinished business. Uh, I guess uh, for Lindsay, that does, does unfinished that, business is war. Does, does that raise questions for you about how much you can trust kind of Trump's influence if he were back in office again? You know, would voting for Trump mean that a, a, a sincere anti-war movement was here, that his mm -hmm. foreign policy would be non-interventionist, no. or are there enough people around him like Lindsey Graham who are still confident that they can probably get their way even if Trump is in office? I mean, that makes the, you feel like it Yeah, that's the big problem it. with Trump. I think that's something even his ardent supporters have to concede, that his choice of person, uh, uh, the people he surrounds himself with, who then end up always, he comes to, <laughs> he's at odds with them, and they're back-talking him, and they're publishing tell-alls. You know, he put uh, uh, Bolton in uh, in charge of foreign policy, who's you know, an extremely hawkish voice. Uh, he, he picks people for other reasons, based on perceived loyalty, based on who he thought looked good on TV, who, who did well on Fox, not for who's sincerely committed to the foreign policy, that yeah. he himself has, has a, it, he himself is drawn to this foreign policy, but he didn't seem to pick people because they shared that ideological view, and that ended up being a huge problem. Yeah. And would be, I, I think, I see no reason to think that wouldn't be a huge problem yeah. in a future Trump administration. Huge. <laughs> huge. <laughs> huge. <laughs> that wraps us up for this week. Be sure to catch us over the weekend where we will post the highlights that you may have missed over the last few days. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're also available on Roku and other streaming services. So catch us over there, and that's more your vibe. See you later, everybody. Bye-bye.